show. Last week, it was announced that the NWO was going into the Hall of Fame, and the creator and the on screen manager and underboss and overlord, etc., etc., of the NWO not included. Uh, what'd you think of the news? Oh, you know, I probably didn't think about it as much as everybody else does and has based on my Twitter feed. Um, my, my first reaction was, uh, well, it's about fucking time. Sure. Number one. And, and then with regard to myself, I didn't really start thinking about it until again, my Twitter's feed started blowing up. I went, well, it is a little weird, but at the same time, you know, I've said it before on this show, probably more than once. Um, I, I think X-Pac is one of the most underrated assets in the NWL. I think X-Pac brought not only a lot of his natural chemistry, you know, based on his relationship with Scott and Kevin, but he just had a little bit of an edge that just fits so well with the NWO. He was so different um, that I'm happy to see X-Pac in there. And, you know, Hulk called me, said, man, I don't get it. I don't get it. I said, don't worry about it, man. You got all this stuff. About it. I'm not worried about it. So I, I, my only reaction was, man, I'm, I'm, it's about time, and I was proud, I guess, to see it. it it's well deserved. You know, the NWO is not given it nearly. I mean, it's given. It's got a lot of credit. Don't don't get me wrong. People still acknowledge it. People still buying the merchandise. I I have to guess um, that the NWO merchandise is probably still some of the highest selling merchandise in the NWO catalog, based on the amount of it that I see at every wrestling event that I ever go to anywhere in the world. Um, but the NWO storyline, the angle, the, all the things that came with it, and there was a lot of things that came with that storyline, probably changed the industry more than anything else in the last 30 years, with the exception of possibly, you know, the beginning of WrestleMania and, you know, back when WWE, you know, eliminated the, or not eliminated, put, put the territory business kind of out of business and went national. Other than that giant pivotal move, the NWO, the storyline, and all the changes that came along with it is probably the next biggest thing in the industry. Yeah, I mean, I would think you're, you're fair to say from 89 forward, the NWO is probably, you know, the biggest force because from the NWO, we saw lots of other spinoff acts, including DX, which went in ahead of the NWO. So now Scott Hall is uh going to be a two-time hall of famer he went in by himself and now with the nwo same thing with kevin nash and hulk hogan but sean waltman went in with dx and now with the nwo so all of those four guys who are going on with the nwo are now two-time hall of famers and eric bischoff still doesn't have any hardware and i think it's just a fucking travesty that the guy who created the thing isn't getting credit for it to me even if you even if you weren't the creative force behind it when the horseman went in, JJ got a ring. The on-screen Eric Bischoff character should have as well. Do you think, or do you put any stock into the rumor and innuendo, or the speculation, as it were, that perhaps the reason you weren't included is your most recent dealings with WWE? No, because as a matter of fact, they just reached out to me the, today and, and asked me to do some things on the network. So it's not like I don't have a good relationship with them. I left on good terms. I had a good conversation with Vince, you know, after after I left. And, 
you know, absolutely enjoyed to death working with everybody that I did. And and I've had some of the top executives in the company reach out to me and, and you know, in, in great support. So I, I don't think that's it. I think, look, if there's anything, I, th- I still think, you know, and I don't know what the process is. You know, I don't know if there's a committee of people that discuss, you know, the Hall of Fame or if it's one person's job or, you know, I don't know what the criteria is. It's all subjective. But I think if there's anything that may still get under people's crawl in, in, in many cases, they probably won't even admit it to themselves is that it was an idea that changed the industry that wasn't theirs. Right. And I, I, I still believe that there's a little bit of a, uh, I don't know if it's resentment as much as it is a, an overall desire to rewrite history and make it look like the NWO was originally a, a WWE idea. I don't know. I, I really don't. But but I don't worry about it. I don't think about it until this time of year rolls around, and especially this year for obvious reasons. But it's just that's something I give a lot of thought to. Let me ask your opinion of the Hall of Fame. You know, there's, there's really two takes amongst all, uh, you know, all of the old timers so to speak, it's either, oh, it's just a stupid TV show and a class ring and a payday. I don't care. And then the other attitude is no, it's a great honor. And you know, there, there's not a, you know, a, a, a traditional sort of mainstream high profile pro wrestling hall of fame. Sure. There are a few others. Um, but the WWE one certainly gets the most attention and to be recognized whether there were politics involved or not is, is pretty cool. Where do you land on the importance of the hall of fame from your perspective? I, I would, I would find myself in the latter camp. Uh, I, I think, look, the hall of fame is my favorite part of WrestleMania weekend. I, I think the, the, the emotion that you see there with the people that are being inducted is all real and, and so real that one of the biggest challenges with the hall of fame historically over the last several years is getting people off the stage. They don't want to leave the stage. They're out there in front of their peers. It's a phenomenal moment for them. And and it means a lot to them. It's their body of work. It's what most of the, the people who were honored uh, in in the hall of fame or are honored in the hall of fame are being recognized for essentially their uh, uh, life's work as an adult. And many of them sacrificed a lot of things for it. You know, they sacrificed marriages and and their lives with their wives, children, husbands, whatever, and travel. And sure, a lot of them, you know, not a lot of them, many of them made a lot of money. But once you're out of the limelight, once you're out of the spotlight, and then you have the opportunity to step back in and how, for however brief a period of time that is, is is I know that it's a really rewarding feeling. I've experienced a little bit of that myself. And I know having been there and having been on stage a couple of times, or at least once, uh, when I inducted DDP, that the emotion that everybody feels is very, very real. And and they take a tremendous amount of pride. And so I, I, I think it is a great honor. I don't think about the politics. I try not to anyway. Um, I... I I, I love it. I love the Hall of Fame. It's, like I said, it's my favorite part of WrestleMania. So I think the natural, you know, next question is, hey, maybe we've sort of jumped the gun a little bit and the person they're going to ask to induct the NWO is Eric Bischoff. Have you been asked to induct the NWO? And, and if not, would you if asked? I have not. And I'll tell you when I'm asked. <laughs> it, all, it all depends, I guess, on, on, uh, 
I don't know what it depends on. I guess maybe my mood at the time. I don't know. Well, one thing we can both agree on is I hate Steven Singer. You heard me. I hate Steven Singer. This time of year, most other jewelers love to hate Steven as well. And why is that? Well, because Steven has the most beautiful, best value diamond studs anywhere. And I mean, anywhere. You can choose a great pair of Anita diamond stud earrings for under $270. And they're the best quality, too. We're talking 100% flawless to the eye and near colorless with tons of sparkle. Diamond studs are the number one gift on her list. And lucky for you, it's a gift that will last a lifetime. And speaking of lifetime, Steven gives everyone a full lifetime trade-in guarantee. That means you can trade up your diamond studs for the full value anytime. So give her a gift that will grow with your love. Diamond stud earrings. Steven makes Christmas shopping easy, but don't wait any longer. This is your last week to order with free shipping and time for Christmas. Order by 5 p.m. Eastern this Friday, December 20th with free shipping, and it will arrive in time for Christmas. Stop what you're doing and go right now to IHateStevenSinger.com or visit the real Steven at the other corner of 8th and Walnut in Philly. Real diamonds, real experts, real jewelers. No one does real diamond studs better. Steven Singer Jewelers, that's IHateStevenSinger.com. So today we're doing something pretty fun here on the show. We're getting back in our way back machine to revisit something that happened on December 18th, 1995, just a couple of months into Monday Nitro. It's been talked about quite a bit and it happens right at the top of the show. It's when Medusa throws the WWF women's championship in the trash can live on nitro. Eric, I told you, you know, a few weeks ago that we were going to be covering this one and this has been discussed a lot. Uh, a lot of folks have different versions of events here. Do you want to clear up any uh, rumor and innuendo before we click play? Well, you know, I'm, I'm going to wait, I think until I hear some of the rumor and innuendo that was floating around at the time. I, I do like, I'm going to, preface this by saying medusa's uh not only a friend of mine she's a friend of my family's you know she's friends of my kids she's known my kids since they were really young i've known medusa since 1987 we both started in the awa right around the same time and and experienced a lot of our the 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 early parts of our career you know together at the same place so i've known medusa for a long time and she's a very good friend like i said of my entire family that being said i've heard i've heard interviews i've read quotes that are not exactly accurate at least from the way i remember it and one of the, I, I think the the narrative that that stands out the most, and I that I kind of want to clear up here today, is that it, I didn't ask Medusa to bring the belt. Mm. Medusa, Medusa called me, right? Because we had been friends for a long time. She knew she was she was going to be let go, and she called me and said, "Hey, do you have anything for me?" I said, for sure, Deuce. I mean, we're friends. And she's talented. It wasn't just because we were friends. She was, she, we were friends. And, oh, by the way, she was a very talented asset to have. Asset. Asset. And, yes, it was it, 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 it was a, a situation where I was hiring a friend. But I said, sure, come on. She goes, oh, and by the way, by the way, <clears throat> I happen to be having the – WWF, it was the WWF Women's Championship in my possession. Shall I bring it with me? 
It was her idea to bring the belt. It was I didn't ask her to, as the narrative that I've read over the years suggests. I didn't ask her if she still had the belt. I didn't con her or cajole her or tempt her or dangle money in front of her to bring the belt. It was her idea. Now, I clearly was excited about taking advantage of it, but I want to clear the air. And I have nothing to lose at this point. <laughs> I've, 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 I've been to WWE and back twice now. There's, there's nothing to lose for me here by being dishonest about this. It was not my idea to bring the belt. However, once she threw that idea out there, I was more than happy to exploit the opportunity. Let's talk a little bit about, you know, where we are. We're, we're nine days away from Starcade 95. We're going to see WCW versus New Japan in a best of series, uh, uh, best of seven series matches. And uh, Ric Flair is going to win the world title from Randy Savage. But this Nitro has probably overshadowed that that big pay per view, which historically, Starcade was one of the big ones, that and, and Halloween Havoc. But this one just starts with such a bang because of Medusa. And we should mention. She had been with WCW from 91 to 93. She started as a wrestler, but that was happening at a time when it seems like WCW wanted to start a women's division. Of course, we know that didn't wind up happening. So she winds up managing Ravishing Rick Rude, and then they join Paul Lee and his Dangerous Alliance. Dangerous Alliance, you and I have talked a little bit about, but not a ton. Is it the most underrated and underappreciated stable in the history of wrestling? It feels like if it would have happened in any other era, but it happened in this down era. It's just sort of not talked about, but what a collection of characters, you know, Arn Anderson and Bobby Eaton and ravishing recruit and stone cold and Paul Lee and Medusa. It's like murderers row. Really was in a tr- tremendous wealth of talent there. And I, I think <clears throat> if you, if you look at that stable, just in terms of the talent itself, Probably one of the better stables, you know, in, in wrestling history in, in terms of talent. But it wasn't booked or, or the story wasn't there. The positioning wasn't there. You know, the, the Dangerous Alliance wasn't something that was being marketed like the Four Horsemen was right. or the NWO would be, you know, in the future. It was a secondary and important, an important angle but it was treated more as a secondary angle than anything else. And that's probably why it didn't get or doesn't get the type of recognition possibly that it should. And it didn't, it didn't have a terribly long run, you know, several months, not several years. Eventually she splits with Paulie and turns babyface and has a match with Paul at clash 21. That's in November of 92. But a few months after that, sometime in early 93, she winds up leaving WCW to go to the WWF and become a lunger blaze. What led to her leaving WCW? Were you, were you trying to cut costs or, or what can you tell me about that? God, I wish, you know, and I've known I was going to, I knew I was going to do this show. I've known it now for a week and a half or so. And I should have really spent more time going back. I should have called Medusa and asked her because I honestly, I don't remember. I don't know if it was a cost cutting situation or Medusa just got the opportunity and felt that was a better opportunity. You know, Bill Watts, that was around the time of Bill Watts. So that might've had something to do with it, but I hate to say, I don't know, but I, I'm going to have to be honest and not bullshit my way through. And I, I just don't remember. 
Well, of course, during her time in the WWF, she becomes, you know, the featured star of the women's division. She would eventually successfully defend the women's title at WrestleMania 10 in 94, defeating Alani Kai. And, um, you know, her last pay-per-view appearance is survivor series, 1995, this same month where we are. So for whatever reason, there's just not a ton of steam behind the, the women's division. WWE's business is way down and, and they just don't have the appetite uh, for this anymore. So at survivor series 95, she's last eliminated by Aja Kong, which is supposed to be the start of their feud. And allegedly they're supposed to face each other at the 1996 Royal rumble pay-per-view for the women's title. But sometime in early December, she's suddenly gone. And here's what Mel- Meltzer wrote about that. Maselli's WWF contract expired on December 13th. So to put that in perspective, it's literally five days before the nitro we're talking about. It was uh, well known within the company that she was negotiating with WCW and her contract wasn't renewed. So technically she was fired. JJ Dillon sent a letter in midweek to all Japan women, canceling the blaze Kong match that was scheduled for the rumble saying that blaze's contract was going to expire and not be renewed. The decision had to be made several days later as when Kong's squash match with Asari aired on the 11th. The announcers, McMahon and Lawler, played it down and never mentioned Alundra's name, which was a giveaway that the women's division was being abandoned. Several WWF wrestlers have been under the impression that Blaze was going to be dumped after the Rumble anyway, and we had heard several reports from Japan that Kong would be given the title in the January match. The WWF had negotiated with all Japan women for Blaze to return to Japan as a regular in January and a return for a few shows on uh, Japanese pay-per-views during the course of 1996. At the same time, she began talking with WCW and reports we received were that Vince McMahon, who found out about it from a technician early in the Raw show, was stunned to the point that's why he seemed so tired and distracted on the live show. So... I guess there's lots of, uh, moving and shaking here. Meltzer believes, or was led to believe obviously by somebody on the Titan side that she was negotiating with you in advance of her contract expiring. I know that's a tiny detail in the scheme of things, but do you think she spoke to you before it expired or after? I don't know that. Um, there were no negotiations between Medusa and I. I mean, it was literally she called me, and I was at TV when she called me, you know, so I was pretty busy. And it was a very short conversation. It was, hey, Eric, I'm going to be leaving WWE or WWF at the time. Um, is there anything there for me? And I, I said, sure. When you're, when you're ready, we're here. Let me know when you're coming. That was it. You know, I mean, we may have talked about money, but it, w- it was more of a foregone conclusion than a negotiation. Right. Um, it, it was such a short, brief conversation that I, it, it doesn't qualify as a negotiation. Now, when did she make that call to me? You know, during her negotiations or subsequent to finding out she was going to be let go anyway? The impression I had on that phone call was she was being let go and she was looking for a place to land. Not, not that she was negotiating with me and trying to negotiate with them and she wasn't sure what she wanted to do or anything like that. It was, hey, Eric, I need a gig. She didn't say it that way. But that, that was the message that I got. So you have that conversation with her. Uh, she's going to be on TV. She's going to bring the belt. Are you guys just kicking ideas back and forth through the week or do you come up with the idea that we're going to throw it on the trash the day of their TV? 
It was the day of. I I wasn't sure what I wanted to do with it, uh, if anything. I wasn't positive I was going to do anything with it. I knew it was on its way. I knew I had the opportunity. And, you know, keep in mind, this is just a couple short months off the heels of me giving away finishes and, you know, jump-starting our show three minutes before their show and, you know, creating the overrun phenomenon that nobody had ever seen before and, you know, all, all the trickery <laughs> all the Sun Tzu art of war tactics that I employed to really shake shit up and get people talking about our show. Uh, th- this situation, you know, with, with her bringing the belt happened just a few short months after all that really got started. So I knew I was going to do something. I just didn't know what until that day. It can't be overstated. You know, that first episode of nitro you have Lex Luger, debut just one day after he was wrestling on a WWF show fast forward you're giving away results for taped draws on your live nitros and now just three months after the whole Lex Luger thing here's Medusa again dude you were uh, a disruptor with a capital D were you not I invented disruption motherfucker I created disruption that was, you know, disruption and controversy. And I look, it was calculated. I, I knew that by doing some of those things, um, it would create a tremendous amount of buzz. And it did. It got people to the point where they had to tune in to Nitro to see what we were going to do next because they didn't know. And we didn't know all the time, you know, but that was, you know, and it's funny. I'm going to, I'm going to draw a parallel or a sort of a, a reference at least to, what we're seeing today and the way we promoted for lack of a better term nitro in in the beginning that was so successful that turned it into such a hot hot brand that allowed us to overcome not the c show or the b show but the a show in head-to-head competition and my approach to nitro was to not promote and, and I'm not taking a shot at anybody here, but for a long time when I was an announcer at WCW and I worked underneath Jim Ross, Jim was very particular and, and did a very good job of you know, making show notes on his format so he knew exactly what he was going to be, be promoting, whether it be the magazine or a pay-per-view or next week's show or next week's main event or where we're going on sale you know, for live tickets or whatever it is. There was a lot of stuff that we were constantly promoting in, in WCW when I was an announcer. And it occurred to me that you know, you're, you're telling people what you're going to be doing next week and in some cases the week after. And it kind of it, – it, Diminished, in my opinion at least, it diminished the need for people to tune in to find out what you're going to be doing. And and I kind of feel the same way when I even today when I like one of the shows that Lori and I you know kind of started binging here uh, about a month ago is an episode on stars called Power. I don't know if you've seen it or not. I've heard it's about a really, it. Yeah, yeah, it's a very cool series. They don't tell you what they're going to do next week. They give you a strong finish, a, 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 a cliffhanger or some some type of big story, you know, plot or twist or something at the end that that makes you want to tune in to find out what's going to happen next week. Whereas in professional wrestling during this time or prior to Nitro and, and me kind of changing up that format, everything was about, oh, you got to promote next week's main event. 
You know, you got to tell everybody what's going to be on next week. Well, no, you don't. Not, not, not at the expense of selling what you're currently doing. You, you don't have to take away from what you're currently watching in order to promote what you're going to see next week, if that makes sense. And also, I wanted to create, in the viewer's mind at least, the feeling or, or condition them, I guess, to know that the only way you're going to find out what's going to happen on Nitro is by tuning in. And I still think even today, when I when I see how WWE promotes and even watching what AEW is doing, and especially now with social media, everybody feels the need to promote next week's main event. Well, guess what? If there's not a ton of story there, or if that's kind of a, you know, if, if there's not a lot of build behind your main event, you just put it out there because you think the names themselves are going to compel people to tune in, you're probably wrong. And if you get to the point where I think, this is just my opinion, if you get to the point where you have to work so hard to promote what you're going to do next week or later in the week or tomorrow night or whatever it is, you probably haven't done a very good job conditioning your audience to feel the need to tune in. It's You're no longer must-see TV. And you're also giving people a reason to go, eh, it's not, I saw that match two months ago. I don't want to watch that. Or, eh, it's not really my favorite guy. I don't really need to watch that. I don't even need to tune in. I'll catch up on it later on. And what I did with Nitro was the exact opposite of that. Every episode, especially in the beginning, when we were really trying to to, to lay our foundation and, and convince people that this was must-see TV, um, we never promoted what we were going to do next week. You had to tune in to find out. And we, we tried to do as many things as we could to, to make people ho go, holy shit, I can't believe they did that. Whether it was giving away a finish or dropping Medusa's belt in the trash or having Lex Luger show up or, you know, calling out Vince McMahon or any of the number of the other silly things that we did, um, we did because we wanted people to tune in to find out what kind of crazy nonsense we were going to do next. So let's get back to Medusa here. Um, you decide that day, hey, we're going we're gonna to start the show hot. We're going to have her dump it in the trash can. Does she have any hesitation about that or is she full bore ready to go? Full bore ready to go. And again, that's, you know, now I've, I'm not going to quote anything word for word because I don't remember it that well, but I've heard Medusa's side of the story and I'm not going to debate her because we all remember things differently. And I, and I, and maybe it's me that's remembering things differently, but this is one I have a pretty vivid recollection of because it was kind of a big deal and it was also something that a lot of people were nervous about it was a little bit like giving away finishes like a lot of the more seasoned talent uh like gene oakland especially and and bobby heenan were they were aghast aghast i say yes i'm using the word aghast in a podcast i love that they were aghast at the prospect of me giving away finishes and in fact, we were at your house watching when I was at your house this past weekend, we watched just a few minutes of this show. And I think I pointed it out to, to, to all of us who were in the room is take a look at Bobby Heenan's face when, you know, when we're watching, we're going to do this watch along and I'll, I'll point it out while we're doing it. Bobby didn't know we were going to do it. Right. But this was so antithetical to everything that Bobby believed in. This was so alien to the tradition of our industry to take a competitor's belt, not only, you know, 
not just put it on TV. That had been done before. WWF did it with Ric Flair. But to take somebody's belt and throw it in the trash and completely disrespect their organization the way that I did, and the look on Bobby's face was priceless. And that was that was a shoot, as they say. That was the real deal. So let's uh, let's go ahead without further ado. Let's fire up the WWE Network. Find it on your network. It's December eighteenth, nineteen ninety five. It's only fifty two minutes. I'm going to give you a countdown. Three, two, one, play. When I say play, you'll press play. Hopefully, you've got closed captioning on. And you've got your mute on. So Eric and I can sort of talk you through this nitro from December 18th, 1995. Eric, are you ready? I'll be ready. All right, here we go. I'm going to do three, two, one, play. And when I say play, you play. Here we go. Three, two, one, play. The big open. You got to mute your side. If you haven't already. Hulk Hogan doing the big leg drop. See the red lights exploding, sewer caps busting through. I'll never get tired of this opening, dude. It's a good opening, you know, and, and especially, you know, at the time. No, this is 1995. That was a very, very sophisticated and expensive uh, open. It was, it was pretty cool. I know there's no way for you to remember specifically. What do you think the budget for that open was? Man, I want to say around 250. It was worth it. I love the look. I love the set. And I love the decision to set the announcer's desk so far away. We see the nitro set here. Lots of diamond plate inspired stuff. Well, this would, would Crockett have had some sort of insert on this or input on this, the look and feel of this. No, um, that was really done by Turner broadcasting, working closely with David and Craig leathers. Craig probably had more probably had more influence over the visual that we're seeing in this open. You know, David would have been involved in obviously the, you know, the construction of it, making sure that it was something that was easy to tear down, put back up and fit on trucks and all that kind of stuff logistically. But it would have been Craig Leathers more than anybody who, from an artistic point of view, uh, had influence. So there you go. Here's Medusa holding up the belt, man. This is history here. I'm going to play a little audio for our listeners. Wait a minute. What? Look. That indeed it is. Trash can. And that's what I think of the WWE Women's Championship belt. This is the WCW. I am now in the WCW. And they used to call me a Lunder Blaze, but not anymore. Because this is where the big boys play. And now... This is where the big girls play. Holy smoke. This is where the big girls play. So, I mean, real, real serious here. Did you have any serious intentions of, Hey, let's make a run at a big women's division. Or was this just, fuck, this is too cool of a moment. I got to make this happen. No, it was too cool of a moment. And again, you know, I knew Medusa was talented. I wasn't sure what I was going to do with her. There was not to answer your, your, your question. There was not. A plan at least to uh, launch a woman's division but you know i was working closely with japan i knew that there were a lot of uh, women you know from japan that i had access to through new japan pro wrestling and others uh that i thought i could again you know bring something different to nitro and in case you're wondering that's not ice train that is one of the most famous chicago bears of all time uh, william refrigerator perry who uh, many people remember from a couple of little cameo appearances with the WWF, but 
It's a big coup. He was a huge name in sports, especially in 1995. Yeah, he was good guy too. Really good guy. You saw Bobby Heenan's reaction there, you know, very real, had no idea. And, uh, I don't know, man, just, you know, saying WWF showing that belt saying she used to be a lunger blaze. Now she's Medusa. Obviously you guys had done your homework on what you could say or couldn't say, but quite a way to open a show. Yeah, this was, uh, this was before the, you know, trademark copyright issue happened. You know, that was later on in 96. So I really wasn't too concerned about what I could do and what I couldn't do. I was pretty much doing whatever I wanted to do at this time and wasn't getting any pushback from anybody. So, you know, this was just me flying by the seat of my pants. Check out our first match on the show. This is like out of a fever dream. It's the nature boy, Ric Flair taking on Eddie Guerrero. Who's already in the ring. Eddie Guerrero is fresh off of working incredible series of matches at the ECW arena with Dean Malenko earlier this year. Of course, the nature boy, Ric Flair is going to be in the world title hunt in just about a week. Um, but these two wrestling doesn't seem like this should have happened in 1995, but here we are. And it really speaks to, you know, just the size of your roster and your forward thinking. I don't think a lot of, you know, traditional wrestling quote unquote bookers or television programmers at the time would have thought to put Eddie or somewhat of Eddie Guerrero's positioning historically in the wrestling business with Ric Flair, meaning for lack of a better word, and Eddie, a guy like Eddie Guerrero wasn't routinely getting matches with Ric Flair and you made it happen here. Yeah, it was, uh, it was different. That was, again, I've said it a million times. That was my whole goal is do, do something different than what everybody else is doing. And clearly it worked here. I mean, what a phenomenal, you know, pairing the matches are speak for themselves that these guys you know, had apart from each other. And now they have an opportunity to, to do something special together. By the way, your, uh, your competition this night on raw, do you have any idea what you would have been up against? Does any, does anything like that stick out? Like, well, when we did Medusa, they did this or that. No, no. And, and again, you know, to dispel the, the urban legend, urban legend to the contrary, it, I, I didn't have a monitor, you know, at the desk while I was doing color and play by play, you know, I wasn't watching what was going on. We did have the show, you know, the WWE, WWF show raw playing in the truck that we did do because we wanted to make sure that whenever possible, whenever they went to a commercial break, we would shuffle things around or manipulate times so that we could be sure that when they were in a commercial break, we were in action uh, that we did do. But in terms of, you know, I, I wasn't booking against them. We were booking the best shows that we could book. And I really wasn't <clears throat> paying attention to what they were doing. Their first match that night was Jeff Jarrett and Fatu. Then they had Buddy Landell and Bob Holly, and then Razor Ramon and Yokozuna. So I'm just going to step out and say that you guys are already winning the night with the Medusa segment. We should mention too, we're just one day removed from the WWF's pay-per-view in your house. Number five, uh, which was at the, uh, Hershey, Pennsylvania, Hershey park arena. So an interesting to say the least. Uh, time to, uh, to have this whole trash can incident go down after, you know, the segments off the air, 
I mean, Medusa goes straight to the back, but you've got to stay at your desk and keep doing your job calling the match. Did you talk to Deuce afterwards? Was she nervous, relieved, anxious, excited? She was, uh, she was pretty excited. I mean, she knew it was a big moment. She knew it was something special. She knew it was a way if you're, if you're going to show up and do something, do it big. And I don't think there was anything much bigger than, than what she did. And she knew that she, she's a smart, smart woman been around the business long enough. So no, she was thrilled. And, and I was, I was, I was happy as hell. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting that, you know, some people say, oh, you just don't do that. But at the same time, the guy in the ring here, Ric Flair did it four years prior to this, when he took the big gold belt to the WWF. So it's not to say that, you know, two can't play that game. Where are you at time code wise? Just so I can make sure I'm sick. Eight minutes, eight seconds, nine seconds, 10 seconds, 11 seconds, 12 seconds. I'm getting there. Okay. I'm at eight thirty three. So now I'm just a little bit ahead of you and I'm hitting play. So we're, we're still looking at Ric Flair and Eddie Guerrero. Yeah. If you're watching at home with me and you're on my time code, I'm at eight 25, eight 26, eight 27, eight 28, eight 29, eight 30. Let's, uh, let's keep it going here and talk a little bit about the next time we would see Medusa. We don't actually see her on TV again until clash of the champions on January 23rd. When she comes out to break up the wedding of uh, Sherry and Colonel Robert Parker, uh, being in storyline that she was seeing Parker on the side in hindsight, do you think you jumped the gun on having her drop the belt in the trash can here? Cause it doesn't feel like we had an immediate plan. There wasn't an immediate plan. I'll be the first to admit that it was a spontaneous acquisition. Um, we knew that we weren't going to be able to hold on to that belt for an extended period of time so that we could, <clears throat> you know, drop into a trash can sometime down the road. It was something that we kind of had to do fairly quick if we were going to do it, but we didn't have, you know, we didn't have a, a woman's roster for crying out loud. We didn't have six or eight women that we could immediately program Medusa with. So uh, you could say we jumped the gun to a degree, to a large degree, but, um, it was also an opportunity to bring someone like Medusa in and then find something for her to do. So fascinating to me, you know, the, the depth of your talent roster here and how it's evolving and changing. And of course we know in just six short months, this will be an NWO WCW and everything changes forever. These guys here are going to go seven minutes and 37 seconds. Um, of course, we're talking about Eddie Guerrero and Ric Flair. It's fun to go back and watch early Eddie Guerrero, isn't it? It is fun. And, you know, I say this, and part of this, I guess, is just, you know, me waxing nostalgic. And But, you know, when I go back and I watch these early Eddie matches or early Rey Mysterio matches or Chris Benoit or Dean Malenko or so many of the guys that set the bar so high, not just in a cruiserweight division, but in the industry. But you go back and you watch them in their early matches when they were young. And even in Eddie's case, you know, the match we're watching now, he's probably 25 or 30 pounds lighter than he was at the peak of his WWE career. And when I see these guys like Eddie and Dean and and, and Ray and Chris Jericho and others when they were, you know, at a more natural body weight, I think, or when they were younger, 
Um, they just move. They're they're so, they're so much faster, crisper, more fluid, and it, it's fun to watch. I guess it's no different than, you know, watching you know a, a, a young NFL quarterback in his first year to three four years when they're at the peak of the game versus watching somebody even like Brady now who is great of a quarterback as he is. He's yeah, he's forty what two years old, forty three years old. Uh, he started to slow down a little bit. He's not the same athlete that he was five, ten, fifteen years ago. And it's the same is obviously true with talent in the ring. But it is fun to go back and watch him when they were younger and in my opinion, you know, a little faster, a little sharper, a little crisper. What's fascinating about that to me, and and, and Flair has said this even of his own career, that when his physical skills started to deteriorate, he would really ramp up the entertainment. And I felt like Eddie Guerrero always maintained a high quality match, but when he got older, he certainly got more into the character, you know, the lie, cheat and steal the Latino heat, all the character work. And there you see Ric Flair getting the victory. He's a little, the ropes for leverage a little bit. How about Arn Anderson looking like a stud here? Arn always looked like a stud. He always looked like that guy. You just didn't want to walk out of a seven 11 and bump into him on a bad day. You know, just always. Always had that look on his face like he could just tear your head off and Mike just just for the hell of it. He looks like he fucking runs numbers for Tony Soprano. <laughs> A Swedish mobster. Is is Arn Swedish? Well his last name's Lund, L U N D E. I think it's Swedish. Oh, I never asked. Let's ask him. Hit him with a text. <laughs> we see Mean Gene in the ring right now. How great is, is Mean Gene hold the stick for Ric Flair? Thank you for that. I don't know how many times we would have gotten that, you know, if it weren't for you. You know, I miss Gene. There, there's a lot of people I miss, you know, unfortunately. But Gene, God, Gene was just that guy. You just always look forward to bumping into Gene because he was always, he was always entertaining. Even when Gene was in a lousy mood, he was entertaining hearing about it. You know what I mean? He just is a great guy. I miss him. We see Brian Pillman here using, uh, the dark arts to turn on Mr. Wonderful. Of course, he's cemented his spot now with the four horsemen. He being Brian Pillman, of course, Arn Anderson and Ric Flair doing the spike pile driver. Here comes Kevin Sullivan. Talk about dark arts. <laughs> Look, I mean, how, how would you describe to a non-wrestling fan, the way Kevin Sullivan is dressed here? God, I don't know. This is just, what was Kevin thinking? You know, it's, I, it's weird I, because the face paint makes it to where it's, I mean, he looks like a, a villain from a super Mario game brought to life. I don't, you know what I, Kevin is so cool. I mean, you know, he's been to a couple of sarcast events and yeah, great guy. He, I mean, you sit down and talk to Kevin Sullivan. Give yourself a couple hours and really get into Kevin's head. He is still, I think, one of the more fascinating people out there from a creative point of view. And I'm not saying that he could be a booker anywhere or head of creative anywhere today. But when it comes to creative, especially heat, especially heel creative, I still think Kevin is one of my favorite people to talk to. But looking at his character here, you wouldn't know any of that. (laughs) No, it's funny because we even joked when we watched this the other day at the house that if a guy rang your doorbell in real life, wearing all black, a ski mask and gloves, 
or was dressed just like Kevin Sullivan is right now. What's more scary. What's scarier. <laughs> and by I, far I, it's Kevin Sullivan. No doubt. It, because at least the guy wearing the mask and, you know, gloves and everything, at least, you know, he's thinking clearly. We, <laughs> <laughs> we know he's got plans and they aren't all good, but with, with Sullivan, it's like, dude, am I going to get sacrificed later? Is there going to be a goat involved? What's happening? Oh my gosh. Uh, we we've gone a long time here and not addressed that Steve Mongo McMichael is holding a fucking dog the entire That's night. Peppy. I, I know. I'm just, I can't believe this is real. Why? Because this feels like something that the Eric Bischoff I know would have made fun of. No, man. Look, look, I've always believed that the best casting is contrasts. And you're looking at a a former a Super Bowl champion, former NFL standout with the Chicago Bears, a legitimate badass, Texas badass. No, nope. and when Steve was at his peak athletically, physically, there was not a meaner badass that walked the face of the earth than Steve McMichael. And to see him, you know, sitting there with this cute little dog named Pepe, that's a contrast that makes it interesting. Big, bad, burly Super Bowl champion with Pepe, the little chihuahua. It was cute. It was interesting. And I like Pepe. I like dogs. You know that. Yeah, I do. My dog's like you. So I know everybody's dogs like me. Yours dogs are really. I, uh, they, what's, what's the younger one's name? Baby? That, that's Baby. But before we talk about Baby, let's talk about <laughs> Craig Pittman coming out here. This is in such contrast to everything else we've seen on the show. We start with this hot Medusa angle. Then we've got Ric Flair and Eddie Guerrero. And now this Sergeant Craig Pittman, but this US Marine Corps, this feels a little WWF 1991. Does it not? No. I mean, Craig was a legitimate Marine. This is it's kind of a half shoot. He was a tough guy too. Craig Pittman was another one. Amateur wrestler. Really? I don't know what his credentials were, but he was a very high ranked amateur wrestler, which is one of the reasons I wanted to bring him in. Brad Riggins was very high on him. I just, I can't get behind Craig Pittman, man. I'm sure he was a great guy in real life, but just this comes off as so cartoony and so hokey compared to it's a, it, it's a little animated. I'll give you that. <laughs> I mean, I feel like, I feel like he's a TV dad and he's got a new sitcom on Thursdays on ABC and look yeah, at this. Was, it's a mullet fest, buddy. How about Lex Luger's mullet here? Is that it as it's peak glory right there? That is a hell of a mullet. So we see buff Bagwell already in the ring here at Lex Luger. Going to get the big entrance. I love the old WCW set. I saw recently, not recently, I guess. Gosh, more than a year ago now, almost two years ago now, that the uh, WWE still has these WCW letters in their warehouse. Hmm. I wish you would have kept some hmm. stuff. That big Nitro logo back there, you should have that like in your garage. That'd be cool. I know. I really wish I would have. You know, I've just never been, I've just never collected stuff. So it never occurred to me. Um, especially, <laughs> well, Especially back in 1995, when I was walking on water, I didn't think I'd ever feel the need to have to collect WCW stuff. But yeah, I wish I would have kept a few things. 
Well, I don't mean from a financial standpoint, I just mean, it would have been cool to sort of commemorate all of your achievements, you know, I mean, uh, no, I know. And, and like I said, I, I wish I would have been thinking like that, but I just, I never did. It would have been very easy for me to, you know, legitimately just say, Hey, I'd like to keep this. Anybody got a problem with it? And I don't think anybody would have. So just never, never thought of it. Let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about the fact that we've got, you know, two guys who are going to be linked in WCW for a long time here. I mean, through the end, Lex Luger, who's just a couple of months into the company again, after coming back from the WWF and we know that buff is going to be a WCW lifer. These guys are going to be in storylines against each other, with each other, the whole deal. And the, the big commonality that I think that they have is their conditioning.
And, uh, we still got the nitro show going here, a little promo for WCW Saturday night. By this point, I know WCW Saturday night is still important to TBS, but it is not nearly what it once was. Thanks to nitro, right? No, absolutely. I mean, WCW Saturday night for the longest time was the flagship show of, of WCW, but with nitro, especially on Monday night, prime time head to head with the WWF. Clearly, it was a secondary show. What can you tell us about Jeeves? Jeeves who's, 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 is, is this guy's name Jeeves? <laughs> yeah. The little, that was, you know who he was originally, don't you? I thought it was uh, Bill Dundee, wasn't it? No, it's Wildcat Willie. Oh, this guy's Wildcat. I thought, okay, maybe I'm confusing it with. No, no, I was confused. Maybe Jeeves was Bill Dundee. Well, I just I... can't remember what, what we called um, Bobby Eaton's little valet here i can't remember no no this is jeeves for sure but i thought you, okay you just interact you you know the bill dundee character you had come out with uh with regal okay that's okay sorry uh, i guess he was squire william or sir william what we're right. looking at here is jeeves aka as you just said wildcat willie how about that yep tell everybody the uh the thinking behind wildcat willie that was bob Dew's idea Bob Dew, you know, Bob Dew, D-H-U-E, Google him. Uh, he'd been with Turner for a long, long time. And Bob, primarily, uh, his job was to manage the Omni for Turner Broadcasting because Turner owned the, the Omni uh, arena. Uh, that was Bob's primarily fu- primary function. And as a result of that, you know, he saw a lot of basketball games, a lot of different, you know, athletic events, pro and otherwise came through the arena. And they all had like mascots. So, you know, Bob Dew's big deal when, when he first kind of got in there and had some control was to create a mascot. And I think the collective brain trust thought that WCW wildcat Willie was catchy and would, would really catch on with the kids. (laughs) Even though the majority of our audience was 25 to 50 or 59, uh, but yeah, that was, that was a Bob do thing. And it, you know, it was kind of cool for a little while. I cannot believe it worked while we, while we were at Disney, it was a big deal. Cause we had a lot more kids there. I cannot believe that it took until just now for me to realize that Wildcat Willie's initials were WCW. Yeah. You just blew it's my really, mind. really forward thinking. Wasn't it? You blew my mind today. <laughs> so the, the guy who played Jeeves, I just did a little research here. Gary Hedrick. Does that name sound yeah. right? Well, yeah. What did Gary do besides dress up like a blue bud or a uh, a stuffed animal? You know, I don't know what his real job was. He he didn't work for WCW full time. Uh, I think he was a high school teacher, and he had previously been a gymnast. You know, when he was in high school and college. So, I mean, he was you know was kind of looked a little out of shape by this time in his life. But yeah, when he was in college and high school, I think he was a gymnast, and I think he was a teacher. Could be wrong. How do you get the gig of being, you guys just had auditions for a mascot and he was the guy. Yeah. That, yeah. I think Bob, Bob do and Sharon Sadello and Don Sandifer. I'm sure Gary Jester was a huge part of it. Um, yeah, they, that was like their mission for like six months is to try to find a, a mascot. We're looking at sting in the ring right now with Nick Patrick as a referee stings, taking on Bobby Eaton, who at this point is very much a heel doing his blue blood gimmick. Uh, I really like this version of Bobby Eaton. I feel like Bobby's in a little better shape than we maybe had seen him in a while. Um, and I don't know that 
he ever really gets the just due that he deserves. But this past weekend, they had a fundraiser show for him, uh, there in Knoxville and it was don't tell Bobby.com. There may still be a way for you to donate if you're so inclined, but all the proceeds from that live gate and the pay-per-view on fight TV, uh, would go to, to help Bobby out. And, uh, I don't know. I'm curious from your perspective. Is it years later when you really start to appreciate just how good inside the ring Bobby was, or did you know that you had a, a real craftsman even here? No, I mean, everybody recognized Bobby's ability in the ring. Every, you know, when anybody found out that they were had, you know, working a match with Bobby Eaton, they got excited about it because they knew they were going to have a great match. They were in there with a, someone that was going to make them look better than they might really be. You know, Bobby had that gift. Bobby was a great worker. Um, he didn't have the gift of gab. <laughs> he was a little rough on the mic, but in terms of his ring work and his psychology and his, his timing and knowing when to sell and how to sell and how long to sell, there's nobody really better than Bobby as a technician. And some of the stuff that he does, like take a look as he goes to the top rope here. I think he's going to come down with a knee drop. He's going to miss and just land on his knee here. It's just my gosh. Ow. You combine that with uh, the top rope leg drop that he was doing. This guy put himself Ugh. through the ringer. You know, and as someone with a bad knee, you know, when you see guys do that, and especially now, because, you know, I don't know how Bobby, how old Bobby was when this match was taking place. I'm guessing he was in his mid to late 30s. Uh, but, man, those kind of bumps, they come back to haunt you when you're in your 50s and your 60s. And you see somebody dropping, you know, from the top turnbuckle all the way down, just flat on that knee. There's not as much, you know, given that ring as people like to suspect there is sometimes. That's still, that's a, that's a painful situation. Bobby right here is uh, 37 years old as we're seeing him take on a sting. who's growing his hair out a little bit. He's a bit of a sting in transition. He doesn't have the, uh, the super, super short blonde buzz cut. He's growing out a little bit. You can see the dark hair underneath. It won't be long, and we'll have the uh, the dark-haired Sting for most of 1996 before we would see him uh, become the full-fledged Crow character in, in this colored version, or more colorful version. My apologies. Would, uh, would be a little different. And there you see the Scorpion Deathlock, and that's all she wrote. We're in Augusta, Georgia, by the way. Uh, why, why run Augusta in, in Georgia for TV? Why not just find a way to scoot up to Atlanta. Was Augusta a good market for you guys? It was historically. And, you know, WCW had a, had a habit. And again, you know, let's kind of put things into context. In 1995, we were now by this time, by December, 1995, Nitro had given us a bump in, in terms of audience, in terms of ticket sales, but not a big bump we were still having a hard time filling big arenas. So the idea for WCW back in 1995 in particular was to try to find arenas that were under 10,000, ideally 55, 7,500 seat venues, maybe, maybe a little more because we were pretty sure that we could fill between papering them and, and selling tickets. We could, we could fill them. And we could get a full audience and we could light the audience and we, we could kind of create the energy that I wanted to create in our show by having people in the arena. Uh, but we still weren't you know, where we needed to be. So, you know, why didn't we just come up to Atlanta? Because we would have been playing in a, 
a venue that probably held at that time twenty or twenty five thousand people. We would have had a hard time putting three thousand in it. Do you have any? Uh, I mean, could you guess what you were paying to rent a building in Augusta? I mean, I think some of our listeners are fascinated by this stuff, but typically, arena rent on a weekend is more than it is on a weekday because you know the weekend is more of a high rent area because more people are running events on the weekend than through the week. So if you're running in an Augusta, Georgia on a Monday night, it seems like you probably get a pretty racehorse good deal. Yeah. I, you know, I, I was never involved in booking the building. So I, I, I'd be venturing nothing more than a guess, but I'm, yeah, I'm guessing, you know, we're probably five to seven grand for the venue. And then the venue of course took the lion's share of concessions, if not a hundred percent of the concessions, uh, in a good chunk of whatever merchandise we sold. So it, it was a fair deal, but like I said, it was, it, it was a lot better than going to bigger arenas that had much, much higher overhead. And, you know, we'd end up only doing 25% capacity. Yeah. To put that in perspective, Jim Ross and Bruce Pritchard have both said that there were times where the WWF would sell out Madison square garden and still lose money. So process that you've got 20,000 folks there. And you're still losing money. So running in Augusta, Georgia, while it seems like, well, it's just two hours outside of Atlanta. Why not just run Atlanta? If you can get a racehorse, good deal. If your Atlanta rent is a lot more and you know that you can get a good deal here. And by the way, you probably have less travel expense. If a lot of your production crew is based out of Atlanta, there's less hotel stays. There's no airline travel. It's just, uh, you get a lot of economies of scale there from our production side. Well, you do. And again, looking at these shots here right now, I'm looking at uh, 34 minutes and 27 seconds and I'm looking at a crowd shot here and we're filled to the rafters right. and the entire, you know, you can, we lit up the people in the cheap seats. You know what I mean? It was so important to me to light up that crowd and, and, and to show that the crowd was having fun. That's the best endorsement that, that you can give your audience watching at home. If you want to sell tickets to a live event, make sure that the product that you're putting on on television looks like a hell of a great time. Create an environment. Make it look like a party that everybody wants to be at. That was kind of the goal with, with Nitro, and it worked. So even if, if, if the Omni would have been free, and actually the Omni would have probably been an intercompany expense, but even if that weren't the case, and the Omni would have been free, if they would have paid us $5,000 to run the Omni, I still wouldn't have done it because we wouldn't have had the look that was the most important thing that we needed at this particular time. Keeping in mind, you know, the WWF, you know, for so long had established itself in terms of, you know, the high quality entertainment, colorful characters, but above and beyond all else, at least within the television industry, their production values were second to none. And that was one of my goals early on was to produce a show that had, you know, production values that were at the very least equal to WWE. And in some cases, in my opinion, better because of the live nature kind of spontaneity that was such a big part of our show that was never a part of WWE. Just a fun little footnote here uh, for some of our listeners, by the way, the macho man's look here, outstanding. You know, we've talked about the way the macho man would change his presentation from the small tights to the long pants and the jackets and the cowboy hats, but him coming out wearing the big gold belt here, that was a pretty fucking cool look for 1995. It was indeed. And we're looking at Paul white here too, who Randy's going to be facing in this match. I mean, you know, we see Paul today and again, we're all 20, 25 years older and we're all 
you know, older and heavier and all that kind of stuff. But you look at, at Paul White in, in this shot here, uh, early 1995, what a phenomenal athlete he was. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, and this was a guy, I, I believe at this point, that could do a kip-up. I mean, he must have weighed 450 pounds, and he could just do a kip-up flat off his back off the mat. And for a guy that big to be that agile was just freaky. It's amazing when you when you look at Paul White here in 1995 and you wonder if he would have stayed in this shape his entire career and not had some weight challenges that may have, you know, I don't know if this gets talked about a lot, but you know, he he had to have some surgeries done because of his condition that that made him a quote-unquote giant and I'm not super familiar with with what the effects of having that surgery are but you got to assume that that could probably be attributed to some of you know his issues with weight and I know the narrative online was oh he was just lazy and wasn't disciplined and blah 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 but that being said the people who are saying that probably aren't as super familiar with the effects of that surgery either anyway I say all that to say imagine if Vince McMahon had this giant all of those years instead of the big show where it felt like he sort of was hot and cold with him for a long time because of those weight issues. Well, I, I mean, I don't know why Vince was hot and cold on Paul. Um, I wasn't there. We never had the conversation, but you know, one of the challenges, regardless of what kind of shape Paul was in, we've talked about this before. I think, um, you know, is he a heel? Right. Well, okay. Does he lie? Does he cheat? I mean, for a guy that big to be a heel is interesting, but how, how do you beat him? How does a baby face get his comeback? I mean, how, what do you do with a guy that, that's that that big? It's very, very difficult to program a guy like that because the minute you start beating him, he's no longer a giant. And if you can't beat him, there's no story. It's It's tough. It's tough. You know, now back in the territory days when you could cycle somebody like that in who's an attraction like Andre was uh, and Hulk was for a good portion of his early career, you know, yeah, you could you could work around that pretty easily by having a guy come come a guy like Paul or Andre or Hulk Hogan in the, in the early part of his career come in and work your territory for two or three months and be that big big man and you know, either be a baby face or heel and be very effective in that role. But you know, fifty two weeks a year for 10 years it makes it a lot more challenging right the uh, little weird footnote i was going to mention is most wrestling fans know that the absolute worst pay-per-view ever was ecw december to dismember in 2006 that also happened in this same building here in augusta georgia the now james brown arena uh, eric if you've never seen that shit show pay-per-view i recommend that uh you test your theory about, oh, it's so bad. It's good. Cause I don't know that you can get there with December to, uh, or, uh, yeah, December to dismember. I'm going to have to look that one up. <laughs> what a look here, man. This old nitro set is something that, uh, I just absolutely loved. See the, uh, the taskmaster part of the dungeon of doom, of course, that Paul White's in. Somewhere around the outside, you assume Jimmy Hart's still there somewhere. He's looking for a can. He's, he's looking for a red light. Can't be far, right? Baby, baby, baby. Where's the camera? Where's the camera? Baby, baby, baby. Where's the camera? Oh my God. I love you, baby. I love you. Look at the fans. Even though 
This is much slower paced action than maybe what we would see today. The fans are into it. Everybody's on their feet. I know it is. That's another thing, you know, again, when you watch what we're watching now from 1995 and then you watch some of the hottest action that you, you find, whether it's AEW, WWE, wherever, um, what a difference in presentation. It's awesome. Everything changes. Everything evolves. Comedy changes, music changes, and so does wrestling. I have a theory about that. I want to ask you about, but first I do want to mention the, uh, the dark matches on this show were Zodiac beating disco Inferno. Of course, Zodiac is the former Brutus, the barber beefcake, uh, Johnny B bad would beat DDP to retain the TV title. Then we would have Earl Robert Eaton and Lord Steven Regal defeat bunkhouse buck and Dick Slater. And in case you're curious, raw got a 2.3 this night for their efforts. And you guys got a 2.7. So you did win the night. Yay for the good guys. Yay. McMahon fears ratings. Yeah. I love you for that. I love, I used to love seeing those, those billboards or whatever, those cards that people would bring to the ring and the signs. They were awesome. That was so much fun. That's another thing that's missing. We need more signs. And I'm not talking about the, oh, it looks like Paul White just about bit it off that top turnbuckle. Um, I'm not talking about the ones that, you know, the guys backstage make up and then they hand out to the people in the front row. I mean the ones that people actually make at home and bring to the match. It added to the fun. Made it real. Some of them were crazy funny. People tweet now. Huh? People just tweet now. I think the poster. That's, that's so, it's so fucking lame. That's just fucking lame. You know what? Let's go ahead and throw down the gauntlet. If you take a, uh, an 83 week sign and you get it on TV, well, that only gets you a t-shirt. We'll get you a phone call from Eric. thanking you for getting us on TV and putting us over. Oh yeah. Hell yeah. Do that. Let's piss some people off. Come on. Yeah. Rock that 83 weeks. We'll let you pick out your own t-shirt over at ericbischoff.com. And, uh, Dave Silva will slide in your DMS, get your phone number. Eric will call and thank you for putting us over. There you go. Good idea. Good idea, Conrad. I'm full of And there you see Hulk, Hulk Hogan. Hulk Hogan's just going to town with that chair, beating the snot out of the giant. 
nail Kevin oh! Sullivan. And look at Kevin. Why is Kevin Sullivan wearing the same colors as Hulk Hogan? It's a great question. I need to. This is another question I'm going to ask Kevin next time I see him. What was the thinking there? Oh, how about Doug Dillinger got one for his troubles? Fridge Doug! Refrigerator Perry almost did. He nearly ate it, but Fridge and. And Mongo are trying to get Hogan calmed down. Hogan's going crazy on everybody with that chair. Hogan loved hitting people with chairs, by the way. He loved it. And he loved taking them, too. Crazy. By the way, I, I, I talked to, to Hulk today. He's, he's feeling better. He's actually sounded great, feeling better. And I'm going to go over and uh, have a glass of wine with him tomorrow night. We should mention, right now, you guys are like... Uh, not too terribly far apart. What? Five, 10 minutes. Uh, about 15. Yeah. It's kind of cool that, that all these years later, I know you're not there for the super long term, but your son wound up living not too terribly far from where the Hulkster lives. So when you go visit him, you're sort of in the neighborhood, small world, man. I know it's great. I dig it. I really dig it. We're going to be here now until January 12th and maybe longer. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. And there you see, uh, folks checking on WCW officials, checking on the macho man. They're going to go to a break here, try to see if they can make heads or tails of what's going on. We come back. We got mean gene Hulkster's here. Randy Savage is here. We're ready to throw down a gauntlet and Hulk after coming in and clearing house. And it looks like he's definitely on the macho man's team. He's going to proclaim here that he deserves a shot at that world title because even the nameplate still has his name on it. He wants a world title shot. Of course, we know that's not in the cards until after Starcade because he's going to be working with uh, Ric Flair there at Starcade. The giant coming back out here. What's the Look thinking? Look at Sergeant Craig Pittman. Craig Pittman holding the giant back. Kevin Sullivan. Kevin, you were holding Giant's arms. He couldn't even protect himself. Boom! Right off the top of the skull of the Giant. Boom! Down goes Kevin Sullivan. Hogan swinging the chair. Down goes the Giant again. Hulk Hogan is just mangled. Not only the Giant and Kevin Sullivan, but the chair he used to do it with. Awesome. By the way, they really were probably the best Hulk Hogan chair shots ever. And then he runs back in and gets on the mic and does a Macho Man impression and yells, oh, yeah. So it's, 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 <laughs> he it's just got, he, he, he does that whenever he gets excited. <laughs> Chat me up, though. What's the, what's the thinking behind the creative? I'm going to save the Macho Man, but I want a title shot, brother. Well, because they're friends, you know, they're friends, but they're also competitors. And there's always that mystery of what's going to happen with two friends that are actually in there competing for the world heavyweight title. And is one of them going to turn heel? Is the other one going to turn heel? Or are they going to remain friends when it's over? I mean, there's a lot of mystery involved in a potential match like that. A lot of things could happen. Could go a lot of different ways. Have to tune in to find out. We should mention that, uh, we originally said that we were going to be covering, um, the Bret Hart debut on nitro. We'll do that one next week. Since we were so close on this Medusa episode, I wanted to go ahead and get in our way back machine and, uh, talk about this one instead, but Bret Hart is on tap next week. And the week after that, we'll be back with you for Starcade 1993. Of course, on top, you've got Vader and Ric Flair. That wasn't the original plan, but we'll talk about all of that and how we got there.
Uh, and we see a Hulk Hogan finger wagon here with the macho man. Randy Savage just, just says Hulk Hogan has gone Looney Tunes with that chair. Definitely a different side of the Hulkster that we hadn't seen. God, Randy was so good. He was so intense. Look at that trio there. Mean Gene Oakland, Randy Savage, Hulk Hogan. It doesn't get a lot better than that. No, I mean, this is, you know, when you think about wrestling in the 80s, you know, three of the, you know, Mount Rushmore performers of the big leagues. And they were still rocking it here. Yeah. Yeah, they weren't at the peak of their careers. Not going to suggest that, but they were sure. Well, Hulk Hogan ended up being, <laughs> I, I think in, in some respects, you know, the NWO Hulk Hogan, well, just I'm not going to say he was, he, he was bigger than the original Hulk Hogan, the red and yellow Hulk Hogan, because at that time in the early eighties, mid eighties, whatever it was, late eighties, when Hulk Hogan really became a household name was something extra special, but damn the NWO Hollywood Hogan was close on his heels. We should mention too, that, um, you know, these guys are just a few years removed from, from huge records. And I know it became the narrative to say, oh, they're so old. Oh, they're so past their prime. Oh, they're geriatric. The reality is that's just not true. You know, the, these guys set all time records in 1989 for pay-per-view with WrestleMania five. That was six years prior to this. You know, and I don't know, we're acting like, and it's, it's easy for everyone to say, oh, but Hogan was so old here. Was he really? He's 42 years old. I mean, wow. you know, let's put that in perspective. Everybody knows where I'm going with this. It's a joke. Now, AJ styles is 42 years old. So AJ styles today is as old as Hulk Hogan is on the screen right now. And everybody's saying, oh, he's so old. No, he's not. Wow. It's weird when you think of it like that, isn't it? It is weird. How old is Jericho? Older than that, you know, Randy Savage here, as we're watching him, is 43, but yeah, to your point, the AEW champ, Chris Jericho is 49 years old today. So he is seven years older than Hulk Hogan is right here. Wow. It is so weird to think about it like that. And what Ray Mysterio is what I think Ray's like 42. It's really crazy when you think about it like that. Yeah. Ray, Ray today is 45. So Ray is three years older than Hulk Hogan. We just saw him too. Whoa. That's so crazy. That's crazy. Especially when you think. And, about- and the thing was, in a, and you know, a lot of the locker room was, oh man, these guys are so old. They're just keeping the young guys down. And isn't it funny how things never change? <laughs> well, let's, let's call a spade a spade. That is a veiled dig at Chris Jericho. You haven't told me that's what you're talking about, but I have a feeling that when you say no, that, it's not, well, okay. it's not, well, well, you made sure to bring up that the, the, the old guy on the new upstart, you know, Chris Jericho is 49 and he's sort of in that Hulk Hogan spot. But maybe when Jericho was saying that to you, Hogan is probably four years younger than how old Jericho is now. Well, Jer- Jericho definitely was one of the guys, but he certainly wasn't the only one. Right. A lot of guys were, you know, I mean, a, a lot of the top talent in, in Chris's category that came in around the same time as Chris all had the same. That was a narrative, you know, it's the young guys, especially in, later on in the in the 90s, you know, internally in WCW, we had a lot of those really younger guys, guys that were in their 20s, you know, bitching about how old, you know, Scott Hall, Kevin Nash, Hulk Hogan. You know, DDP, you know, these guys are too old. We should let the young guys in there. Well, 
you know, a lot of those guys that were bitching and moaning about the old guys are, are working on top today, not just Chris, but but others. You know, look at AJ Styles, Ray Mysterio. I think Ray's probably coming to the end of his career now, but uh, maybe not. Who knows? But these are a lot of the guys that were, you know, complaining about those old guys at the top. Well, we hope you're not complaining about us revisiting a Nitro from 1995. We'll be back next week to revisit one from 1997. Of course, we're talking about December 15th, 1997. We'll do it watch along style. Don't watch it ahead of us. Watch it with us. What a great time December of 97 was. We're just days away from Eric fucking up the biggest pay-per-view ever. <laughs> uh, December 30th, Starcade 93. We'll be back at you January 6th for the debut of Thunder. And, uh, man, we were really going to hell in a handbasket when thunder started. I'm sure Eric has going to have to load up on all sorts of antidepressants before we watch that show, but we've got a lot of fun stuff coming your way, including something I'm really excited about on January 20th. Uh, we're going to fast forward to 2015 and I know what you're thinking. What? Huh? We're going to talk about <laughs> when sting debuted on raw and we're going to actually have Eric watch that episode of raw, maybe for the first time ever when one of the classic sort of hallmark characters of WCW, the franchise, if you will, finally shows up on Monday night, raw after being a staple of nitro all those years. But next week, it's all about Bret Hart right here on 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.